And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. Today I am chatting with journalist, broadcaster, author, academic, rock musician, former AFL mascot and host of the project, the delightful, the wonderful Walid Ali. Hi. Hello. Hi. How are you? Thank you for having me in your brand new home uh, on yep. your lovely couch. <laughs> Well, you you make it sound like I'd have have a table. No, well, I mean things are in not. I wouldn't say disarray, but you're still in the you're still in the middle of working out where to put everything. Yeah, the hard bits, the artwork. Yeah, and we also we're still waiting on rugs and things. Yeah, it takes a little while yeah. to to get yourself settled in. Uh, now, now this show is all about the early days of your career, and and mm. you are sort of in a good way everywhere. Well, be careful. Be <laughs> ca- whenever someone says in a good way, <laughs> you know that what's to come is not good. No, it is good. It You're is quite good. different. <laughs> you are quite different. In a good way. <laughs> But you're—I mean, basically, you sneeze, uh, and you know, there's a story written about it. There's yeah. everything that you do um, gets a lot of things that you do go viral, and there would be very few people now who wouldn't be aware of um, of, of who you are. But you're not somebody, even though you've been in the media for a while, you're not necessarily somebody who people have been really aware of until maybe the last five or so years or, or maybe a bit. Yeah, probably. That. It, well, it would depend who you are and what you read or what you yes. listen to. So, yes. Yeah. But certainly um, not as, as kind of mainstream as you've become um, post-involvement no, in the project. I certainly wasn't on commercial television. Yeah. So, I, I, w- I was going through reading some interviews about you um, and you were saying that you were a bit of a floater and somebody who just kind of went where the opportunities were became available to you. Mm. For some people, particularly in media, who have been trying to push the proverbial up the hill for years to get a, a mainstream gig... Sitting on one this of... This sounded remarkably autobiographical the way you said that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is where I take you to task yeah. for the fact that you've got a big job in TV and you didn't even want it. No, but honestly, for a lot of people, it's it's a really conscious effort. Okay, I want to get there. I want to get there. Yeah. And I think it's it says more about your, your natural skill set as a commentator, performer, host, all of those kind of things that you've gotten to where you are. But was this at any point... Even though you floated, was there even a glimmer of a sort of oh, I think I might want to get to do something like this? As in media, or yeah, you mean commercial media television, stuff. or either. Uh, I was always interested in journalism. I think, especially print. Mm. Uh, when I was a kid, I I think it was about grade four or five. I decided I was going to be a journalist, and I I think I, I made a newspaper for our street. And the front page lead was some scandalous story about plants being plucked from the front yards of various houses. That that newspaper, by the way, never actually made it to print, but it was a concept that I had and I had roped a couple of my neighbours into it. They really just wanted to ride their BMXs. So I didn't don't right. think it went very far. But yeah, there was that kind of consciousness there. But then it went away, to be honest. So when I was a kid, it was kind of growing up journalism all law. Yeah. And everyone kept telling me I'd be a really good lawyer. I think what they meant is stop arguing with me. Yeah, right. And so I kind of naturally floated towards that sort of stuff. And then at the end of high school, um, after a brief dalliance with the idea of doing physiotherapy, and there was a period of time where 
I gave serious consideration to doing music at tertiary level. The sort of migrant genes kicked in <laughs> and you did a sensible thing. So I went and did engineering law. But no, there was no journalism involved. So it was an engineering law degree. That's a pretty heavy double. Yeah, it was six years of studying. Yeah. And I, so the way I put it is law was the thing I was kind of interested in. Engineering was the thing I did in order to remain in my Egyptian family because if you, <laughs> if you don't do engineering or medicine, you're not actually an Egyptian. So right. You just, you just get excommunicated. It's really – people don't know about this, but it's, but it's a very thing. serious thing. So, <laughs> I, so that interest in journalism had always kind of been there. But really my interest had been in the print side of it. So mm. never really saw myself as a TV person. Oh, that's right. When I was in primary school, I did do a radio station at school in grade six oh, that would you? air every Wednesday at lunchtime. Do you, when you were at school, I, I don't they know. They had if radio studios at your school. No, 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 no. We just recorded it in a room through a PA. ghetto blaster type oh. thing. Yeah, yeah, kind of like that. And so, <laughs> you know, there was this period where you would, the bell would ring for lunch, but you wouldn't be allowed to go outside for 15 minutes because you had to sit there and eat. Did you have that? What? Did you not have that? What, you had to sit down and eat before you could so go there was and play? A, so, lunch, the bell for lunch goes. Oh, no, and, and the there's first, mass exodus the first, in No, so the first 10 minutes, you're in the classroom eating. I think because they obviously figured out kids just wouldn't eat. Not yeah. at my school. We, really? Oh, yeah. We, there was no problems on the tooth at our school. Wow. Yeah, we'd all sit down, eat our lunch and then do whatever. But, yeah, we never had to – we were never you told we had no, to. No, we were we, – it was kind of a lock-in. And it was in that 10, 15-minute period, that's when we would – our radio show would go on out through the PA. You Hang on, were you eating on air? This is very no, no, bad. No, no, if you Oh, okay. I thought you were actually doing the show. No. Right, so you would record it on a ghetto blaster, what, yeah. on a tape, and then yeah. and then they'd play it over the PA yeah. system on a tape. Yeah. What was your material? Uh, I don't remember much about it. We ran some competitions, played a few songs. I don't know, we must have discussed some things. I have to ask, I should have prepared for this. Mum has the tapes somewhere. Oh. Please. I shouldn't have said that. So oh, gonna, please. You're going to try to find them. Anyway, mum has a tape somewhere and I should go back and listen to them. We do. We might do an interview every now and again. Wait, was this something that you had gone to the teachers and said yes. we would like to do this? I wrote so up it was a proposal. Pro- oh, for God's sakes. What? I love kids who like do this, you know, like get really <laughs> applied and prepared and like go in with their little, this is great. It's so you so wrote funny. a proposal. I had the idea once in, I think I was about to go, I was in bed trying to get to sleep and mm. a, this idea came in my head and I remember going to footy training and I mentioned it to a couple of people and they were like, oh yeah. And then so I just roped some friends in, mm. said, do you want to do this? Should we put together a proposal? They said, yeah. So I went away and I wrote this letter. I traced the school emblem. <laughs> So that I had this is like a letterhead. This is this is this is spectacular. Yep. So, okay. God, I wish I had this letter. Someone, I'm sure they don't. I'm sure they threw it out two minutes after they got it. But anyway, so we put this proposal together, and they said, "Yep, they let us do it." We got out of class to do the show. Wow. And that wasn't the main reason for no. pitching the idea no, to get it wasn't. out of class. I didn't think they'd let us do that. So how long were you doing that for? That was just in grade six. It was one year. Just we for did. one year. They said, we'll give you four weeks. And then at the You got end, an extension. We did. You got picked up and the next season got picked uh, up. Yes, straight. We, well, <laughs> it was a rolling season. We just kept oh, okay, going. Okay, right. And then when it got to the end, we, we finally, the big moment was when we finally played Buster Move <laughs> by Young MC because... <laughs> All year, people had been play fast and move, play fast and move, and we weren't sure if it was a bit too risque yeah. for that time slot. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, by the end of the year, we were just, ah, stuff it. What are they going to do? Kick us off here? So we played Buster Move, which was which was a big song at the time. Yeah. As you uh, may or may not recall. But it was, yeah. So we did that. So now that I think of it, it's funny. I put all these pieces together and I think of media work as something that I never really thought much about or pursued but actually there's all this evidence yeah that was something in there. that i was sort of interested in it don't yeah. mention the name of the school otherwise they'll be sent an invoice for apra fees <laughs> <laughs> for all the years of playing songs that they never paid for well only young mc could oh, do it at this point uh, no yes. one else knows uh, yeah that's it exactly <laughs> it could be anything so what about in terms of, of sort of drama or performance or any of that kind of stuff you said you obviously music is mm. a big part of what you did yeah um was any of those were any of those kind of things in your wheelhouse no, when you were not a kid? not being on stage like acting was not what i did drama I, I, like at in high school when i started getting involved in drama it was as a musician so it was like right. in the musicals or whatever and we'd do whatever the show is and i'd go there as a guitarist or play saxophone or whatever so it was really music that was the whole thing but um i don't go through life kind of feeling like i was a real performer you know uh, and that i needed to have the limelight although that radio station may VPS FM, is what it was called. Um, what did VPS stand for? Is that giving away the, the school? school? I oh, don't okay. care. <laughs> uh, no, it was Vermont Primary School. I still remember. Right. Um, yeah, they're still there. Yeah, right. Yeah. I went oh. there recently because I did home delivery with Julia Zamiro oh, and we yes. went back there. It was, yeah, it was right. the weirdest Is experience. that the first time you'd been back there? Yeah, for ages. Yeah. And it's it's amazing because bits of it are the same and bits of it are not. But the bits that are the same, it's like, oh, my God, this is where we handed in the cassette for VPS FM, which they would play on Wednesdays. Does everything look tiny? Yeah, of course yeah. it does. Yeah. I have to go back to my school to talk in a little while and I haven't been back in, <laughs> ever since I left. It's a great thing to do. Yeah. It really is amazing. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. It'll, be, uh, it'll be good. So were you – I'm guessing you weren't a shy kid. Do you – No, not as – like, no, I guess. Mm. But – but in another way, it was. Like, I, I didn't... I feel weird saying this because people will just tell me I'm a wanker, but I still don't actually like the limelight in that way. Um, why is that wanky at all? Because people will say, "Get it, what are you talking about? Look at your job. No. But I don't, I don't like spotlight. So that said, when the spotlight is on, something clicks in and I just deal with it. But I'm, I think- I'm not anxious about it. I just don't particularly like being the focus in that way. I don't think that I have met as many people that feel comfortable with it as I have met that don't feel comfortable with it. Yeah, right. I am certainly the same. I know most people that I've worked with or a lot of people I've worked with in the past, there is an anxiety that comes with maybe it's not as much anxiety for you. Sometimes it can be real anxiety for Mm. me. Like, you know, I I once hid in the toilet because somebody threw me a birthday party and I couldn't deal with everybody singing happy birthday because I couldn't deal with all the attention. But you can get up and host an event in front of 2,000 people. Because you know what I think it is? Because it's it's depersonalised. Yes. So the audience is just an anonymous mass. Yes. Because once they get to a certain size, it just becomes undifferentiated. And the other thing is, I spoke to Pete Burner on this show about about it, is that it's the sense of having a purpose in a room. If yeah. you put me in a cocktail party with a bunch of people I don't know, there is no worse place on earth. Yeah. The, uh, there is nowhere I would rather be less than that. But if you say you've got to host an event, all of a sudden I feel, okay, yeah. I have a reason There's to There's a be. reason for yeah. And so when people are looking at you, you know that it's justified. There's a reason yeah. for them to be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's that's kind of it. Um so, for example, when I'm at a function and I get acknowledged, I, I, I find that deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. 
That makes total it's easily sense to me. That makes total sense to me. But I think a lot of people outside of the business, they often say, well, it's that same argument of, oh, if you don't want the attention, you shouldn't do what you do, you're yeah. doing. But it, I guess for you, it's a mixture of the opportunities have come your way. So it's not necessarily like you've chased them down. But at the same time, you are good at what you do so it's sometimes it's it's kind of finding that balance between realizing i think i've become good at something that i'm not necessarily um, like suited for in Mm. some ways (laughs) yeah yeah. you know i do know what you mean um and i do wonder if yeah i i feel like i don't have the personality of someone with my job in my industry yeah Um, like it just doesn't seem to fit but so well i got sidetracked with the whole radio thing Mm. but what I was going to say is that my love was print, really. So I always, I mean, I've got memories of a ki- being a kid sitting down on the ducted heating and I'd sit directly on the duct. <laughs> which sure is not good for you. <laughs> this is what I would do. Okay, yeah. I'd sit down directly on the duct and I would open the age, which of course until very recently was a broadsheet. Mm. And it was bigger than me. And I would just surround myself in this thing and look at it and not really even understand most of what was there apart from the sports pages and Mm. things like that. But I just knew I liked this. And all through, you know, even into uni and when I started actually writing for newspapers, I just always had this obsession with newspapers. Uh, And whenever I was on holidays, I'd want to get a copy of the newspaper, even if it wasn't in English, and just look at it. I used to look at newspapers – not even read them, just look at them so that I could get a sense of the sections and things like that. It's really interesting. Mm. Um, and so it's a good thing newspapers have such a great future. <laughs> but, Isn't it just? <laughs> yeah. But I, I do – that was my thing, print and and writing. And so the broadcast side of it didn't really occur to me, um, VPS FM aside. Of course. It didn't really occur to me as a thing to do. And I think the thing about newspapers is – that they tend to be focused on the issues, mm-hmm. at least they used to, um, rather than the image and the people and the personalities. Um, that was more glossy magazines, but newspapers were not that. And so one of the ways in which I think I carry my aversion to that kind of, let's call it unwarranted spotlight, yeah. <laughs> um, through a job like the one I have, is that I still, in my mind, am approaching it through the issues let's deal with the story that's in front of us let's explore or interrogate the issue that's in front of us and so it it always even still and I know how horribly hopelessly naive this is but it still comes as a shock to me when I become the issue or I become the focus of so if I do an editorial or something and it goes viral I feel weird that everyone's talking about me rather than the the issue (laughs) at hand because in my mind that's all I'm trying to look at yeah which is it, it's ridiculous that i still have that pretense but that's just instinctive i think i can't yeah, and i, I really mean, can't really get around that that's your wiring yeah um, i guess yeah but it, it's it's difficult i know we've had some conversations about this before and it's really hard when you try and impose logic onto the media <laughs> because you can't approach it as in yeah. uh, you know with a you uh, with a practical logical argument for why is this happening what because there is no rhyme or reason sometimes mm. to things and it doesn't make a lot of logical sense. And so it can, yeah, it, it can feel a bit like you're caught up in the middle of a washing machine and you're not quite sure how you got in yeah. here. Yeah, and my sense of it is that journalism as a vocation is built on certain principles that are important principles. But 
I feel in media practice, I can't say it's totally across the board, but you know, it's pretty wide. Those principles remain theoretical, I think, mm. because very often it gets trumped by the emotional element of whatever it is we're doing, the sensational element, the quest to make it gripping and interesting, which is not always the way to make it enlightening. There are all these sort of different factors that are at play, and so it's a it's a compromise. Mm. And I don't think we talk about that very often. I think our audiences do, but I don't think we do. Yeah. Well, I think the business has changed in a way that even the in in you know even journalists who came at it with the most most ethical sort of I want to you know change the world and shine a light on the darkest places kind of approach have faced an economic reality that is I can't get a job unless I write about stuff that if you asked me if I'd do this in journalism school I would have said hell no Um, which I think is a real problem yeah it really bothers me I've been really lucky in that regard I've generally been able to do things that are just pursuing stuff I'm interested in anyway Mm -hmm. and maybe that's because I never um, this is not a career I planned, and so I didn't really chase it. Mm. Um, it's not like I was, I'll fit in anywhere. It was a door open, and I went, oh, yeah, okay, that does seem interesting, and went and did it. So it was kind of fortuitous in that way. But I know we've had conversations off air and about the craft of broadcasting or the life of broadcasting. And, and you know, when I get wind of people who broadcast and they do it as performance and a confected performance where they may not even believe in the stuff that they're putting out there, I just find that contemptible. That That's yeah. not something I am interested in doing. That doesn't mean I'm immune from that. It doesn't mean that I will not succumb to that mm. at some point if mm. I haven't already, but it, but it's that's not to be admired. Mm. And I think that's um, unfortunately where so much of the economic pressure and business pressure in our industry is pushing people. Yeah, I think that's the thing I've always felt is that I am so aware when I do the work, this kind of work, that it is me. I don't go out there as, you know, a character name. Rochelle or Corbet. <laughs> Rochelle Corbet. <laughs> you really should have an alter ego like that. I feel like it needs to be something a little further away from uh, Rachel Corbet. <laughs> my alter ego, Rochelle Corbet. I'd be very interested in knowing what Rochelle Corbet would think about stuff. But I just think, you know, I, I've i always felt and, and I, I only think now, sort of 16 or so years into my career, that it is paying dividends. And I think in the early careers, I, early days of my career, I really struggled with how I felt about it personally because I thought to myself, I want to be a good person. I don't – if somebody tells me I have to say something, if I don't believe it, I don't want to say it. And in some ways I felt kind of like that approach was holding me back. Like I felt a lot of people that I worked with – sort of looked at me like a bit of a naive young girl that yeah. didn't really know how to play the game. Yeah, it's hard. How do you walk through this without turning into something fraudulent? Yeah. Yeah, or an imitation or, yeah, a parody of someone else or something like that. Yeah, and at, the, at the same time, I feel like I'm, I'm coming across more and more people in my time now that, th- that feel this way too. I, d- I don't know whether that's just... Uh, a- is that a good thing though? Maybe they feel that way because it's the... The conditions are getting worse. But maybe that's sort of making everybody kind of grip on tightly to their true selves rather than trying to... Yeah, maybe. I don't know, because I just feel like there's no long-term strategy in, in putting on a mask that isn't you. I say eventually you're so, going to get found but out. But here's the thing, right? Like, If we stop and think about 
the media that we work in, especially broadcast and especially television, this is an inauthentic medium. And that's not a criticism of it. It's just inherent to the medium. So there's something authentic, uh, more authentic, I would say, about print. There's probably something more authentic about radio. Yeah. Because television is so condensed and the image dominates and it's so produced, there's an inauthenticity to the whole shebang. Mm. So I suppose what we're talking about is how, if at all, can you maintain some level of authenticity within a deeply inauthentic framework? Especially when you become part of the story, I think, on television much more than any other medium, I think, you become a part of it's it doesn't it's not like you're a news reader delivering the facts you become Waleed Ali and what Waleed Ali thinks and that gets meshed up within the facts of the story which is strange I, I remember reading some academic paper talking about something else actually but they made an observation that television has the least authoritative information but is the most authoritative medium so true (laughs) it's so true interesting way of putting it and and newspapers are the opposite yes the most authoritative information but they become the least authoritative i'm often amazed i talk about this a lot to to some friends of mine about the idea that the weight the extra weight that you are given if you are on tv for no reason yeah like somebody could have never met or somebody could have known you for six months and just thought oh that's why lady you know i've seen him around the place i know nothing about him and if they find out you're on tv all of a sudden you have more weight than you did yesterday. Why is that? I don't know. I cannot work it out. So, and, and maybe this is a problem because it's that that then drives people to aspire to it and then be prepared to make all manner of sacrifices of their authenticity in order to achieve it. I don't know. And then that's where you get this mess that you that you can get where bigger ideas that... It, that television or television journalism or whatever that's meant to be in the service of something bigger can actually become something that's in the service of something much much smaller oh yeah 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 it's pretty it's pretty fascinating so if your passion was was print was that your first step into media was writing articles yeah and was that as an expert writing so well i don't know i, I don't know at what well, point for you want get of a better expert, but yeah word. i was just writing opinion pieces and things like that around the place um did you get approached for that or did you look out no for no that no work? so i just started so it's kind of a long story but as i was getting to the end of my law degree it, the idea of doing something in media especially print journalism just re-emerged yeah <laughs> maybe because i hadn't got myself organized to get legal jobs arranged yeah. <laughs> <laughs> although in the end i did work in the law for several years but um I don't know what it was, but the whole idea came back to me. And uh, September 11 happened. And on the day of September 11, so this is before the attack itself, but mm. during the day, and I still remember this day really clear. It was a Tuesday and the weather was stunning. Mm. Uh, like one of those perfect spring days that you get. And it was Richmond were in the finals and I went along to see Richmond train because mm-hmm. it was the first time I'd been in the finals for a while. And I was at uni, so... You know, I've got time. Yeah. So I went along, uh, just watched training happen. There was a lot of buzz in the air. And then that night, the attacks happened. And then on that Saturday, Richmond are playing Carlton in a semi-final, which we win. But in that, uh, before the game starts, I'm reading the paper. And Martin Flanagan, who's a writer for The Age, sports writer for The Age, I've always loved. 
one of those people who I always saw when I was a kid on the ducted heating looking at the <laughs> newspaper. <laughs> yeah. um, he wrote about that Richmond training session on September 11 and he described a family that had me in it. So I went with my sister-in-law and her kids mm. and he wasn't to know that it was my sister-in-law but he just described us in the course of the article and I'm like, oh my God, Martin Flanagan's whatever. So I then wrote an email to him as a uni student just saying, look, uh, um, you don't know me but you wrote about me. Oh, <laughs> um, wow. And just laid out that I have an interest in, in writing um, and how much I admired his work. And sent it off and kind of assumed that was the end of the matter. And I must have left my phone number because not long after that, like a few days, maybe a week or whatever, he gave me a call. Wow. He goes, well, lead. And I said, yeah. And he goes, it's Flanagan. And then <laughs> a relationship was born. Um, and it was kind of through him. And I sent him some of my writing and he, he said to me, uh, he read a couple of pieces and he goes, mate, writing's like playing footy. You can either play or you can't and you can play. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was kind of blown away by that. And that gave me a real impetus and I started writing a lot of stuff. And my, it was funny, my ambition at that point was maybe one day if I'm really, like if I work really hard, I'll get something published in like Farago, like the What's Melbourne Farago? University student magazine. Oh, I love this. <laughs> That's yeah, what yeah. I... That's the top of the tree. The thought of getting something published in a newspaper was just like, like what? Mm. When someone's, I think it might have even been Martin, said, you know, you might be able to sneak something into the age or whatever. I was like, are you serious? Dude, like it never occurred to me and a whole world opened up of yeah. possibility and so eventually it happened. So um, what was the – why was he picking – singling you guys out in that piece? Oh, because uh, because we're a visibly Muslim family and on September 11. So he described us at the, at the footy, like at a football training session and he said, you know um, – so his whole article was about the importance of – sport and the importance of games going on in the face of right. adversity. Ah, okay, gotcha. And so he he spotted our family and he sort of said, you know, looking across the ground I see Right. His family and they just they were just another Richmond family. So he was just making a really brief point on the way to something bigger. But I just saw it and well, there's only one family that could have been. <laughs> what are your thoughts on fate? Uh, <laughs> I don't know how this fits into how well, this fits into your religion. It's a or... <laughs> very big question because you would have to define it. But Do you think like a moment like that? Yeah. The fact that you just happened to be at that game, like that he just be. happened to see yeah. you, that you just happened to be the type of person that read the age at that age, yeah. and you saw the article and recognised it was about you, and went so far as to put in an email, and that he bothered to call. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Like that is pretty. That is a series of steps that you go. That's not. Yeah, that's that's a pretty remarkable way to yeah, kind of it begin. Kind of feels like it. There was a script written. And yeah, I was just fulfilling it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so was he kind of mentoring you or like yeah, yeah. giving and we, you and feedback? We remain friends. You know, he. Um, and I frequently say my whole career is his fault. Wow. You know, without him, uh, I don't do any of this. I don't. I mean, I don't think you never know, but. Uh, it's hard to imagine. There are, there are a couple of people that have been... There are a lot of people that I owe a lot to, but there are a couple of people who have been really seminal, and he's one. Mm. Um, and John Fain is the other who um, hosts the morning show on ABC Radio in Melbourne, and he's the one who made me a broadcaster. But I don't get to that point without Flanagan in the first instance. Um, and so, we yeah, we spoke a lot um, whenever I wrote 
something i try not to bother him ridiculously yeah. but whenever i wrote something he wanted to read it and he would give me his thoughts on it and he's a very unusual sort of a writer actually so in a way uh it's an unusual person to go to to get feedback on the kind of stuff i was writing but he was really he's he's very good at it w- you know, he's was very good at describing the way to do it when you were writing did you feel like you kind of had, even though obviously there was room to improve and he helped you through a lot of that. At the core of it, did you feel like you sort of knew how to put things together? Yeah, I, I felt like, I, was, I mean, I felt like I wasn't an idiot. Mm. And, you know, I did a law degree, so there's a lot of writing and there's a lot of arguments. And, you know, I'm used to that sort of idea. Yeah. Uh, and I did well at school in English and all that sort of stuff. And so I, I felt confident writing. But I, it's learning to write for each format. Yeah. Right. And and in some ways writing an opinion piece, I don't know you write this way as well. So I don't know if your reflections are the same as mine, but writing an opinion piece is one of the hardest forms of writing to do because it's so short. You don't actually have very long to make an argument. So when I write academic stuff and I've got thousands and thousands of words, I actually find that easier because you can grind out every little thing and follow every little nuance. Right. And, uh, with an opinion piece, you don't really have that. Mm. And you can't assume a lot of knowledge necessarily, but you kind of have to assume enough in order to be direct enough to get it done in the 800 words or 1,000 words or whatever it is. So it's actually a very difficult discipline. And I, and I suppose in a way I had a natural feel for it. That's kind of what, what Martin was telling me. And I remember he did say to me one day, he said, you have a diamond, you've just got to learn how to cut it. So That's cool. Yeah. So when he said that to me, I was kind of like, okay, um, that that's encouraging. So I look back on okay, like very rarely would I do this, but occasionally I'll stumble upon some piece I wrote a while ago, and I think I'm a better writer now. But I can see what was going on. Do you think you sound the same? Like, do you even though you've improved, do you look yeah. at that and you go, oh, "Yeah, I, I was still writing My like voice. I am." Yeah, I'm I'm much more conversational in the way I write now. I think mm. there's probably a touch more. Uh, Flair's the wrong word, but you know what I mean. There's, there's a, more relaxed in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, than I was, but yeah, I can see. Like, I could see at the time. I can see the lawyer, even the use of certain phrases and whatever. And so I was probably a much more restrained writer. And now I'm a little, just I just approach it a bit more loosely in the way that I, it, it and so I probably write a sli- slightly more quickly, but it depends on the topic and yeah it varies wildly as you would well know mm. what was the first piece you ever got published and where was it published so in a newspaper you mean or anywhere anywhere oh geez i don't know there's probably something in a in the school newspaper primary school that i wrote but um what was the first piece that you were like oh i'm a published counts. writer uh it was probably in the age so it was the sunday age on the 24th of november 2002 i still remember this how old were you then uh, what would I be in twenty three, twenty four, maybe? That's pretty cool. It's in the Sunday Age, and it was Fred Nile had proposed some kind of ban on. I don't think it was face veiling, but it might have included that. But it was more than that. It was you know all kinds of loose garments that mm. Muslim women were wearing. So I wrote this piece about it. And I don't even remember much about what I said in it. But, oh, that's right. And then John Howard's response. He was being interviewed by maybe even Stan Zamanik or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and John Howard's response was something like, well, I have no clear response to this because, you know, Fred speaks for a lot of people. And a lot of people were shocked by this. It was like, 
What do you mean? You have no clear response. It's a pretty mm. obvious thing. And then he backtracked later in the day, but the damage had kind of been done. And so I think I wrote something about all that. Uh, and it got published in the Sunday Age. And I still remember not being able to sleep the night before it arrived because we get the paper delivered, right? In that, at that time and still do. I yeah, still do. Oh, you still do. Still do. That's I, good. Because I think it's really important to support newspapers. Yeah. So, yeah. But anyway, um, so I was just waiting for the delivery. And I'm, I think I was even awake at the moment. I heard the... Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Did you keep it, the clipping? So I do have the clipping somewhere. I don't know. I, I think mum has the clipping. Mm. What I have, and this is really strange, <laughs> I have the rest of the paper. <laughs> With the article cut out. So even if you show it to people, they're like, yeah, sure, Wally. There's yeah, nothing yeah, in here by you. You well, can't just cut an article out and yeah, pretend it was yours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's funny. And when um, we're going through all our stuff recently and Susan was like, come on, like throw this out. And I'm like, no, I no, can't. No, means too much. Because to me, it's not just the article. I like the rest of the paper. I like the, the context mm. in which it all occurred. So I have an almighty collection of newspapers, which are all, I don't even know where most of them are, mm. but they're around, you know, because I like to keep the whole thing. Oh, you always keep the whole thing of the no, articles I've, that you I've, read? No, there are gaps. Oh, hang on. Oh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, while Lee's wife, Susan's just <laughs> creeping by. <laughs> no, no, no. Nice to see you. <laughs> um. So you ke- so do you keep clippings of most of the stuff? I, I in the interest of all the clo- I'm a, I'm a clipper. You're a clipper. Yeah, I'm so a clipper. I, Mum does all that. Oh, she does. And I don't need to. to she tells me off if I haven't told her about something because oh. she's like, but I need. Where was I going to? Oh, so she cool. she likes that. I like to keep the whole paper. So if I can, I'll grab a copy of the paper. And I I never look at it. This is the weird thing about it. And there are gaps all over the place. Yeah, but. Certainly when I started writing, I used to keep all of it, but I wanted to keep the whole paper. And so recently I was looking at some old ones and it's amazing. I was looking at newspapers from 2005 or whatever, talking about climate change. I'm like, oh my God, that story has not changed. That could be written. And there's something really valuable about that. But but I'm a, a, I'm a hoarder and B, I am the kind of person who would happily get lost spending hours in the microfish area of the state library looking at newspapers from okay. nineteen twenty three. There's yeah. something I just find something magical about those sort of things. Mm. And so if I've kept a newspaper because I have a piece in it, my piece is kind of the least interesting bit about it. Mm. It's the whole thing. But it's around. nice to have those things, I think, even if you don't look at them because often when you take steps through your career and everything becomes kind of the next step on the ladder, it, it, it's not like it loses the magic, but it, it's not as – sometimes you forget what it felt like to be that kid who sat down and looked at a paper like it was this amazing thing you could never be a part of. Yeah. All of a sudden you're like, oh, man, I've got another deadline. I've got, you know, I've got a fortnightly column or a weekly column or I can yeah. submit my pa- articles and it's just par for the course. And I think it's it's good sometimes to sort of, even if you don't think about it all the time, the fact that you've kept those things is holding on to that bit of like wonder yeah. at what it was to be somebody who couldn't get their name in a paper. But uh, yes, all, all that is absolutely true. And it, it also evokes a different time. So, mm. you know, I look at these newspapers and I go, God, we were blessed, you know. And I know there would be people who looked at those newspapers at that time and would have gone, this is a disaster. Remember the... 
the glory days of you know and i hear people talk about the just how magnificent the age was sort of what i think the golden age they talk about is what probably through the 80s mm. maybe the 70s i'm not entirely sure but there's a there's a period where people were like this was possibly you know like it was one of the top newspapers in the world and the the level of resourcing and all that and you know, we all know that that's now falling away as the business model collapses around every newspaper really but there is something that it captures that mm. um can't be captured by looking up an article online you know yeah and i'm actually very rarely interested in anything i've written really as far as looking back at it or reading it or anything like that but i i am interested in somehow having a tangible representation of that time Mm. and yeah there's something about that that's irreplaceable and i and the interesting thing for me is i don't feel the same way about broadcast so i have no desire and i have no record of all the radio shows that I've done, TV, I just, to me, that appears and goes. And I guess because most of the broadcast I do is live, so I don't, it's not like I watch it or anything, yeah. I'm doing it. So it feels a much more disposable thing. There is something unique about writing, isn't there? Like I was talking to someone else who is a broadcaster who started doing some writing about about this point and they said they they treasure the pieces they've written more and they care more about how it's presented in the magazine or the publication or whatever. Mm. Like, there is something about that that they really hold on to. There's something yeah. sacred about it. I don't, and I don't really know what it is. I think because I often struggled early on in my career with feeling before I'd started to write and I was doing mostly radio and stuff, it, it felt like you would sit in a studio and you would do the show and then you would come out the end and you would be like, what have I made? Yeah. Where is the thing I made? Yeah, it was it's gone. Yeah, it's gone. It's disappeared. And when you get the paper and you read, you're like, oh, I worked on that. I made it. I wrote it. There was a blank piece of paper. Yes. And then there was like a thousand words. Yes. And it was me in between yeah. those processes. And so you can actually hold it and say, I did this. But yeah. I always found it very hard to say I did this when I was doing radio yes. because it just disappeared. That's true. Yeah. And there is something about the permanence of it that it stands, mm. that it's there. You, mm. you you live with it. Yeah. Um, and I think there is also a thing about the presentation of it. You, What you submit is a Word document. What comes back is something that is fully typeset and they, maybe they've got a cartoonist to do an illustration. Yeah. They've come up with a headline, which is an important point. People don't realise you don't write the headline. <laughs> yeah. And often the headline doesn't reflect your argument or whatever mm. at all. But, you know, it is treated. Mm. And then you get back the treatment. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, you're, you, you are entrusting something that you've invested in to be handled and so i think you have this interest in how it was handled whereas with broadcast i suppose it's so immediate you said that it got broadcast yeah i mean i know there's treatment around it there's production there's lights there's yeah and you go in and you plan but in that moment you're sort of you've planned things but you're also kind of working through your argument at the moment that it happens so it kind of doesn't feel like you're necessarily it's not considered in the same way yeah exactly um was was that article that you got published was that through flanagan had you sent it via him or had you established a contact at the age by that point so i think i uh, i'm trying to remember how this happened now i I think i i certainly sent it to him at some point Mm. because he gave me feedback on it he, I think, told me which editor would be relevant, which is actually one of the hardest things. Oh, yeah. He's like, who do you yeah. send stuff to? Like, who do you talk to? Yeah. So I think he gave me the contact in that way. And he might have mentioned, he said, hey, keep an eye out. He certainly wasn't in the, you know, in the office banging tables saying, <laughs> if you don't publish this, I walk. <laughs> <laughs> it was nothing like that. But um, yeah, he sort of helped out in that way. 
and then the help the the other significant help was just the advice on the piece mm. itself. So then were you in a position where you could contact that editor and start pitching ideas? I never wrote for that specific editor again, right. actually. Because that was in a really weird section. It wasn't in an opinion section. It was in a thing called Reportage or something, which doesn't, oh, I don't okay, think exists yeah. anymore. It was effectively an op-ed piece, but it wasn't published there. My first ever op-ed piece was actually published in The Australian uh, in 2003 in December, I think. And was that something that you'd again tried to get into or had somebody approached you so for comment? I had, no, no, that was me. And then so what happened was uh, – um, so what's that? That's more than a year between those pieces. Mm. And then the next one I wrote was April 2004, again in The Australian. Uh, and I remember there was a period of time where every time I pitched something to The Age, I couldn't – they wouldn't publish it. Okay. I just, and I just thought I will never, ever get published in The Age. Why do you think it was I, that those stories weren't resonating? I don't have any idea. And then I started getting published in The Age and then it just bang. But at the time I was published in The Australian more than anywhere else because the opinion editor there obviously liked Like what I was what you did. writing. I don't know. But um, I remember once I, that ball started rolling and by 2004 is really when it started properly. Uh, and at the time I was working as a lawyer. So it was, it was all, you know, on the train on the way in and on the way out and to be honest, kind of how I do my columns now because I you do it were, around work. Yeah, but you were saying the other day you had to write a column after the show and you were saying, yeah. oh, you'd probably finish at about 4 a.m. Yeah, so standard practice is, yeah, I'd get home. By the time I actually get down to work properly, it's about 10. Oh, that's maybe, me out. Maybe 9 if I'm really brutally efficient that day because, you know, I haven't had dinner or anything, so I have to eat. By the time I do that, kids in bed, all that stuff, it's 9 o'clock's a miracle but 10 o'clock is probably more likely. And then I'm writing till 4 a.m. Wow. That's sort of the standard operating procedure, yeah. But um, once I started writing these things, I had a rule that I imposed upon myself, which is that I would have a piece published in a major newspaper at least once every three weeks. Mm-hmm. And I remember there were times I got to the last day. <laughs> but typically it was happening every week or two because I – I was determined to reset the clock Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was determined to get published in as many different places as possible. So uh, first time I got published in the Sydney Morning Herald, I remember that was exciting. Uh, Herald Sun, Daily Telegraph, the Mercury in Hobart, the Advertiser, the Courier Mail, uh, Canberra Times. Were you contacting all of these publications independently? Yeah. Yeah, so right. I just figured out how to do it and I just mm. would ring the editor and I'd pitch a thing. And, you know, you know how media works. There's a momentum and and there's a certain busyness and laziness that, that it ha- takes place. And if you're around and people have seen you write somewhere else, they'll go, oh, yeah, sure. Mm. Um, it's so often it, just that first one to actually say, oh, here's something I've already had published. Yeah. You're a published writer then. Yeah. You know, you've been – and if the age has decided that you're – good enough to publish, yeah. then that then all of a sudden says to other editors, okay, we're not going to get we can write 800 words of stank. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's going to yeah. be something that we can actually well, they'll, publish. Well, at least look at the piece. So yes. the hard thing is not – well, no. It is hard getting it published, but the harder thing is getting them to read it in the first place. Mm, yeah. <laughs> because if you're an opinion editor and you're getting, you know, 50, 100 submissions a day mm. and you've got four pieces that you publish a day and two of them – or even three of them on an, any given day are already dedicated to certain columnists who write on those days. Mm. You, you, you're publishing like one, two percent. Yeah. Of what you, you, even reading them is unlikely. And, you know, I know the New York Times has a policy where they read every single submission, but they have a massive team. Mm. I, was, I was at the New York Times building 
last year oh, and they cool. showed me around and it was like here is our op-ed floor oh god <laughs> meanwhile over but, here it's like one guy furiously yeah. trying to get through emails yeah while yeah. writing three columns <laughs> of his own that he's chucking someone else's name on because he's got to fit like yeah, yeah it's just it's a just insane world. yeah and, and that's a different thing as well because they have the new york paper and then they have the international paper and you know there's a lot going on there but still it's it's a totally different thing so did that snowball for you with more and more kind of writing you were getting your name out there and then how did radio slip into that mix so it's related right so the other thing i was doing apart from wanting to publish in a lot of different publications was i wanted to publish in a lot of different sections Mm. so i started writing essays i started writing sport um meanwhile you're still working full-time in law yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) i started writing entertainment pieces every now like not really but occasionally please Um, tell me you wrote something on the kardashians no this is (laughs) pre-kardashian when did the kardashians start it feels like forever it feels like they've been here forever no No, um i remember uh, writing a piece for bohemian rhapsody's 30th anniversary it was probably the first out and out entertainment piece i wrote and I was really wrapped that day. First day I did sport, I was blown away. Oh, really? Because I didn't cool. know the sports section was open to contributors. Yeah, right. Like, op-ed's obvious. Yeah. Because it says at the bottom of the piece, you know, this yeah. person is not, you know, they work over there or whatever. But sport, it was like, you don't just get to rock up and write sport. And I got to do it. That's some of my most cherished, you know, moments as a freelancer. So uh, I was trying to write everything, really. And I remember how I ended up doing radio was again through John Fain because he'd read a couple of pieces I wrote. I wrote two pieces in the space of a week, the week of the tsunami Mm -hmm. and John Fain on holidays somewhere read them. And he obviously, because they were so close together, I assume he went, Oh, this person seems to be about. And so you were about, all right. You were about everywhere. (laughs) Constantly firing off emails to editors. Yeah. yeah. So I, well, no, I was calling them. Oh, you were calling. Oh gosh, how old school. Yeah. Well, no, I I decided to give up on emails because. No one ever read them. Respond. Oh, that's cool. I don't know if that's different now, but Mm. certainly at the time. So, um, I got a call from John Fain's producer a few weeks later as his radio year was starting up. And he said, uh, he's seen a couple of your columns. He thinks you might be an interesting person. Do you want to come in and co-host the conversation hour with him? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. So I went along and did it. And then it became a thing. And then I started doing it quite regularly. And so that was the radio side. Alongside that, some friends and uh, and I had been doing a show called Salam Cafe on, on community television. yeah. Which was totally, that's just a satellite project, nothing to do with anything. So all those things kind of came together and... It was out of that that I started doing radio stuff at the ABC. I remember the day John Fain's producers called and said, we were wondering if you'd like to come in and do some presenting. And I was like, what are you, you mean like fill in for, like this is like one of the most high powered radio shifts that exists in the country, right? Like it's, it's three and a half hours of morning radio. It's, yeah. and I was like, this is a mistake. How long had you been doing this stuff so far? Oh, I was just doing a conversation now. I don't know, maybe, maybe a year. Yeah, right. I don't know, but it's that's a very different beast. The yeah. whole conversation hour is a totally different thing. Yeah. And I'm just co-hosting it. It's not like, you know, I'm not doing will you resign minister interviews. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I originally just said no. Like, oh, I'm did not, you? I was like, I can't do this. Mm. Like, it's not my skill set. This is a disaster for everybody. Mm. And it probably took them 
that sort of came back to me over a period of about a year or two. And eventually I relented. So my first ever radio shift solo mm. was filling in for Fane. Wow. So it wasn't like, you know, graveyards at community radio. I didn't, I didn't do that. Yeah. I was just thrown in the deep end. And, and I remember consoling myself by going, well, it's January. There's no news. <laughs> like, you know, by about 8.35, we'll be doing gardening tips or something. Yeah. You know. And then did something huge happen? Israel sent ground troops into Gaza. Yeah, right. The night before my first. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just out of control, you know. Do you remember what that first shift was like? I remember being surprised how comfortably I got through it. I don't think it was good, mm. but I thought it would be a disaster. Like mm. I would just not – there'd be 10 minutes of dead air because I – wouldn't know what to say. But you're surely an over-preparer, are you but not? But you can't prepare for that. Like it's – you get in at 6, mm. you're on air at 8.30, you don't know what the stories are until you – Yeah, right, like it's, it's go. so topical, yeah. It's just go. Mm. So it's just surviving on your wits. Have you always been somebody who's – you said you were reading newspapers a lot when you were younger. Have you always been somebody who's been across a lot of stuff? Because I think that's often the challenge of especially a job like that. Yeah. It's like, okay, great, you can have one area of expertise, but you need to have a, a fairly large amount of knowledge across the board, which when you're starting out, you think, could we stop time? Could I take six months <laughs> yeah, out the back room yeah. with like the microfish and, <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, yeah. and Google and just get across every single world event that's happened? You know, you sort of need so much broad knowledge. Were you already the type of person that had a fairly decent kind of breadth of knowledge? I wouldn't describe myself that way, no. So were you scared? I would be terrified because it takes a while to it's build up to that bank of... Yeah, I guess by the time I was doing radio shifts like that it, it had gotten to the point where I kind of was across quite a right. bit yeah like I look back now and go how did I how mm. how did I survive that and I survived it reason, reasonably well yeah but yeah, I as think, it turned out I, I think I, from you you probably feel like you you know classic imposter syndrome that everybody feels at that, that sense of like I'm not ready for this but there is obviously a sense of natural talent that you know gets well, so you here's through the that thing, here's the thing right all my scholastic tendencies have been towards, uh, I suppose you might call specialisation, expertise, which is how you end up as a, you know, working in the law or you mm. end up in academia, right? But my interests have always been very conceptual. So as a lawyer, and I, I believe, well, I know because I, I know me, um, <laughs> I take this into my media work as well. It may not come across, but I'm actually not interested in anyone's conclusion. I'm far more interested in how they got there. Mm. And I think that's a legal thing. So lawyers are called upon to argue for their client. And that means you're looking for a particular outcome. The question is, how are you going to get there? Mm -hmm. What legal reasoning can you use? And so because you could be arguing one side of the law on one day and the next side on another you become far more interested in processes of reasoning than you are in the specific conclusion that you're reaching. So I've always been fascinated by that. And I think what that's meant is that my education through university and 
through high school as well and you know especially late high school when I started doing um, some basic epistemology you know that's the theory of knowledge that sort of stuff mm-hmm. I was always interested in ideas the concepts that you use to marshal arguments to identify weak spots in arguments to interrogate issues whatever far more interested in those than in what anyone's specific opinion on things were were or was so what that means is that i'd been gathering looking back on it i'd been gathering over time tools that were just really big analytical tools it's not that's not the same thing as knowledge so i I couldn't tell you the first thing about what the gdp of australia was Mm. or what the state of the budget was necessarily or uh, like I, i was lucky to be able to tell you who the attorney general was mm. when I was going through school and through uni. It wasn't that journalistic sort of accumulation of facts. That didn't interest me. But what it meant was that when the time came for me to be involved in these conversations, I'd acquired this sort of grab bag of analytical tools that meant that I could encounter something unfamiliar and find a way to ask the next question or reason through it in the course of an interview. So even if I don't know much about the subject matter, I know enough about the broad principles at play or I know enough about if you said this, it implies that, so would you also say that? Yeah. And then ask that kind of question. That's good in terms of the armour that you need to go out and fight in media, but it must be frustrating when you're across from some people or working in certain situations because you realise that more often than not, a lot of people in media have only the conclusion and yeah, yeah. none of how they got there. Yeah, and that, that's probably what bothers me about media. Like, So I don't like media that is all about uh, I'm going to shout my opinion, opinion at you and deal with it. And I know that right this moment there'll be people listening to that going, but isn't that exactly what you do? And my argument would be, well... I hope not. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to shout an opinion at you. I'm trying to show my working. So if this is my opinion, I'm quite happy to tell you, but I want to earn that opinion by taking you through an argument. That's what I'm interested in doing. And you may like the argument or not, or like the conclusion or not, but I'm not just going, that's my opinion and deal with it. Do you like changing your mind? Do you like having your mind changed? I I love that moment where someone says something that stops you in your tracks the problem is that's not a great moment to have on live television and this is one of the problems with i think our whole public discourse is that everything is now so performative Mm. on television on radio even in print now and especially now that everyone's on social media they're constantly performing Mm. so there's a massively public facing element to everything we do so we're performing our opinions we're performing or you know we're not just having them or forming them, we're mm. performing them. And so what that means is it makes persuasion so much harder because that moment of being stopped in your tracks, if it's happening in the wrong forum at the wrong time, becomes an embarrassing moment. Yeah. It's not the same thing as sitting down with a book and someone's arguing something that you disagree with and by the end of it you're like, actually, they've got something here. That's a, that's a magnificent moment. And no one needs to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's also it also requires the, the luxury of time to flesh it out. And on yeah. TV, you usually like, can you, um, can, can you explain what your thoughts are and get it done in about 12 and a half seconds? <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's the hard thing about it. <laughs> yeah. You know? And 
You know, I know with our show, I know we try to do that. Okay, I mean, the editorial pieces are different because there is a chunk of time where you can kind of flesh out an idea, and even then, it's hugely truncated. Mm. Like you're talking about something that should probably be a book, yeah, right? And you're trying to condense it into three, four whiz bang minutes mm. with graphics and stuff, right? But you know, when but even outside of that, when we're having a conversation on the desk and there's toing and froing, it's very brief. It's very hard to do it with any kind of depth. We try, we do what we can within the confines of the format, but you are inevitably going to get a, a sort of a reductionist argument where people are forced to, here's my stake, there's your stake, we disagree on that, all right, let's move on. And it would be great to have more time and it would be great to know that if we had that more time, the audience would come with us on that journey um, rather than just reach for the remote. Mm. But these are the calculations that I guess everyone who's working in television is making all the time. Yeah, of course. Did you what, what was the first point that you thought I think I'm working too much in this that I need to leave law? I just became miserable in law. So I've, I've yet to meet I only know yeah. one of my friends from law school who loves they it love so it. much it like fuels him he's a barrister now he's the happiest <laughs> man I've ever met but no everybody else Well no here's the thing I love the law. Mm. I don't like the practice of it. Mm. But I love jurisprudence. Yeah, right. Because all the law is – well, no, this is a reduction. But <laughs> We're not going to an ad break here. <laughs> what, what the law is to me is the endeavour of extracting meaning from language. Here's the legislation. Here's the case law. Now we have to extract the content from that. What does that actually mean when applied to this situation? And – that is, I think, one of the most joyous um, pursuits because, it, like, you look at language in a totally different way. You look at communication in a totally different way. I remember when I was really uh, – I was still at uni, actually. I was doing a seasonal clerkship, and one of my fellow seasonal clerks came to me at the end of the day because she recognised that we both had an interest – this will sound incredibly boring. We both had an interest in statutory interpretation. Right? Of course. Yes, which is, you know, like – what principles you use, how do you, when you have two, two pieces of a statute or different statutes that appear to contradict each other, mm. what are the principles you use, for example, to reconcile them? How do you, just, does the specific one prevail over the general or like how do you, is all that mm. stuff, which I love. But she came to me at the end of the day and she said, well, Aid, I spent the whole day researching the meaning of the word A. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that to me is like, that's the most exciting thing. <laughs> Because there's probably a decision from the House of Lords in 1873 that <laughs> interrogates this. If A appears in this context, then we are bound to read it this way. And if it appears, you know, I don't know. I actually don't know. You don't might know. be the first person hosting a commercial television I know. <laughs> show that's ever. I know. <laughs> that could say, yes, the idea of researching the history of A yeah. is like one well, of the most exciting things. Because it's an argument, right? Yeah, it's yeah. about, well, um, does it. Um, are we going to interpret it this way? Are we going to interpret it that way? And what are your reasons for doing that? And that's, I, I don't know. I find that there's something that really turns me on about that. And I can feel everyone glazing over at this, but I, like I, I really love that. Mm. So I love the law in that way. But the practice of law, it just got to a point where I just, I wasn't cut out for it, I don't think. Mm. Um, maybe I would be if I did it now. I don't know, but I just wasn't. And so I was writing all this stuff in media at the time anyway. And some of that stuff caught the attention of people at Monash Uni and they sort of said, well, do you want to come to Monash? You can." They, they have these contracts occasionally where you do a scholarship for 
um, a master's or a thesis or whatever and there's a teaching component alongside that and so eventually one of those contracts came up and I applied and had to submit all my grades and substantial pieces of writing and all that stuff uh, and I got the job so uh, I moved into that um, but again academia really suited me because it's akin to that kind of process of law right mm. it's it it's delving and depth in research and extracting meaning and ideas from things and so I just I just loved all that sort of stuff and you're still writing doing the radio and stuff while you're doing this stuff at Monash yeah yeah right yeah I'm still in the classroom so which I love I really love the classroom and then when did the project begin was that another sort of they're looking around for voices just to pop on the panel and well they the, contacted the, the you? first time I was ever actually just on the show mm. was as a guest in like the first week of the show, I think. Cause, oh, really? Yeah, because a lot of – when the show first started, there were just a lot of ex-ABC people who'd gone over to help make it, I think, because oh. I, I, you, you're better confirming that with like the producers of the show, but this is my memory of it from mm. the outside. There was people calling me. I was like, oh, you because uh, I guess when you need to staff a show with a whole bunch of news people – instantly yeah that's what's going to happen you're going to get people from it won't just be the abc it'll be from all over the place but mm. the people i knew were from the abc and so some story happened and they asked me to come on because they knew me right so, and then as talent on an area so was it a bit of a break between between then and you being weekly on the show oh yeah, yeah. so i started appearing in the chair that you're in mm-hmm. uh in about 2011 in fact i think it was 2011 because it was the 10th anniversary of september 11 they had me on for a special that they were doing and they'd asked me for some story ideas because Carrie was going to New York to put together some stories. And so I was on for that show. It was just going to be a one-off. Mm. Uh, and that was that. And the second time I was on the desk, I was hosting it. What? What? Because Charlie was sick. It was ridiculous. That night, I had spent overnight flying from Indonesia. I was in Jakarta for a conference. Yeah. I left the conference early because I had to come here to give a speech. I was giving that speech. On, I was about to give that speech. On the way... I'm jet lagged. I have this thumping headache. I'm going to give this speech I don't want to give. And I get a call from the producer and the producer says, Charlie's not well and I probably shouldn't be asking you this yet, but would you be prepared to fill in for him? I was like, what, like host the show? Had you done much hosting apart from like well, I've been Salem doing Cafe radio. or like... I've been doing a lot of radio, but no, not really. But none of, yeah, right. I was hosting big ideas on the ABC for what that's worth. <laughs> and I remember getting that call and just going, well, this is, this is nuts. Like mm. everything says no. I'm not well. I've got this thumping headache. I'm jet lagged. I don't, I just, I don't even want to do this speech. I just want to get that done and go home, go to bed. Mm. And for some reason with all that going on in my head, what came out was, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And that was that. So then he scurried off and, put all the pieces together to make it official. The next thing I know, I was driving in. Now, at that stage, I don't even know how often I'd watched it. Yeah, right. So here I'm hosting a show. And I, and I thought to myself, well, if it goes terribly, mm. I get to say I did it. And yeah. that's that. And I remember it was half our show in those days. So it was only three segments. At the end of segment two, I remember going, well, well they'd, at least you've discovered you really can't do this. <laughs> Was it not good in the I first couple of seconds? I thought it was awful. Oh, how, how were you on reading autocue at that point? Pretty good. Because yeah. I, I think I'd hosted News Breakfast a few times. Oh, okay, right. Now that I think about it. So you it. weren't totally green. No, mm. no, no. But it was a hell of a, yeah, it's a position jump. to be in. Mm. Like, 
Yeah, and I remember going, all right, well, at least I know I'm no good at that show. Mm. I'm no good at uh, This is something I can't do. And at the end of the show, one of the senior producers came to me and goes, we didn't tell you this before, but there was actually a focus group watching uh, up in Sydney and I just got off the phone with the CEO or whoever it was and they just thought you were fantastic. And I was like, this is like weird. I, not only did I suck. But well, in your mind. But now you're telling me I didn't. Yeah. And I don't. I don't know how to process this. So all I did was kind of go, okay, thank you, <laughs> and go away. <laughs> and then eventually they started, well, fairly quickly, they started asking me to come in pretty much weekly. And then the process the when Charlie left and you took over, did you know that you were on the cards to, to host or was it a surprise that that ended up, was it? Well, I'd been hosting pretty much every Friday Yeah, yeah. anyway. Mm. Uh, and if I was, I was in the fourth chair every Friday, but if I wasn't, then I'd host. Yeah. So I'd been doing that quite a bit. And so it wasn't like it was completely out of the blue, like the who? Yeah. They want me to what? <laughs> yeah. But uh, but there was, there was certainly no, it's not like when Charlie left, I was just you assumed. going oh, yeah. well, away, you know. And yeah. I had a job at the ABC. I was hosting Drive on Radio National. And I was, I think in the end, the project asked me to do, to, to come on board with about maybe a day to spare. I was about to sign to keep going at the at ABC. RN. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and even that was because I was going to sign the week before, but there was a big shake-up at Radio National. And it made me go, hang on a second. So I had to revisit some stuff. And there was all this other stuff going on at the ABC because this was just after the budget cuts. Yeah, right. The Tony Abbott ones. And there was a big uh, – there was a whole lot of stuff going on. Yeah, uh, I was trying to work out what my job at the ABC would look like because it might not just be radio, I might be able to do some other television stuff. And I think in the end, people at the ABC were so distracted trying to pull all this stuff together that it ended up being an obvious thing to do, Mm. to go to the project. But it very nearly didn't happen. Like really, really, like I'd assumed it it wasn't going to happen. There's a lot of there's a, it's a, we mentioned fate at the beginning. It seems a lot of and a lot of sort of situations where I mean you you were responsible for getting your name in print at the beginning, even though that chance meeting. Or well, no, but yeah, there's every chance it doesn't happen without that. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's that's every chance true. I don't even write, or I don't even think of it. That's true, but the fact that you are somebody who would ring up a you know every editor of every newspaper and sort of say I'd like to pitch and set yourself a goal of I want to be published every three weeks or you know even that just is is indicative of but somebody you know, who's. But do you know what's weird about this? Mm. Yeah, but do you know what's weird about this is when you say it back to me, it sounds a lot more ambitious than it felt. It felt right. So I I wasn't doing this with any master plan. That was just a little itch I had to scratch. And and what's really weird, and this will not make any sense to anyone, but in my mind, being published had nothing to do with being read. So I remember occasion. I remember the first time I got an email where someone said, "I've been following your work over the past year or two. I was like, "Oh my god!" How did you see it? Yeah. <laughs> so I would get it published, and to me that was a big deal. But it never occurred to me, like in a really deep way, that there were people out there reading it. Yeah. It was just about having it there. Yeah, but it's like a goal, it right? Was, yeah, it was kind of that, but it, but it wasn't pursuant to a thing. It was just something I was doing at that moment. 
But I don't know that you necessarily in this business have to have an end goal. I think it's very hard to have an end goal because it's like it's so meandering the paths totally, that you yeah. take to the end that you're like, well, I could want to be the host of the project, but how the heck could you get there? You yeah. just There's no guarantee. There's no discernible path. Yeah. You know, you're at the whim of the business and it, decisions of execs and at right place, right time and skill and all but that But I wasn't even thinking in that way. Like it was just a thing I was doing. No, but that's what I mean. Like all was, it becomes be is… Lawyer. Yeah, but all it becomes is my goal is to get my words published in a paper. That is yeah. what I would like to do. And then that then beca- that, that happens and then it's like I would like to do this three time- once every three weeks. Yeah. And then it becomes I would like to do – you know, and yeah, yeah. next but, thing you know, that's kind of it. you're sort of t- – you're doing the steps to, to get to where you are. And I remember a moment where I was sitting at the airport in the lounge, like in the – at the gate. Mm. And you know they have those um, containers that have the newspapers in them. Mm-hmm. And I remember one day I had an article in the paper, and I watched as people came and took it. And it was one of those weird worlds colliding moments where I went, "They're picking up! Oh my god, that happens!" <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you have to believe me when I say it. It never really properly occurred to me that people were reading it. It was I... just about. Oh, it'd be pretty cool if it was. There. I get, I get that because I feel like when I submit. I feel proud that I've given something to, and I go, that's the full stop. Yeah. That's the full stop. That's where it ends. You asked me for something or I pitched something to you. You've said this is something we would like to publish and that's it. And yeah. you're right. You don't think any further past that point because it's like a, it's like the level you, you accomplish something and, yeah. and you've yeah, made that, it. That's to, its own accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So when you say it back to me, it sounds like I was this real go-getter, but <laughs> I didn't feel like that. I think I'm actually naturally a very lazy person. Mm, I suppose too. We 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 go through this process in a much more protracted way than it actually occurs. Like this is happening over years and years and years. So yeah. when you actually look back and you say, with the benefit of hindsight, I did this and the other thing, it seems like you planned everything and in yeah, seven yeah. and a half months you were doing it. You know, but yeah. and a really big week once. Then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but at the time it's sort of ten years. Yeah. What do you think is the best and the worst thing about the industry? Oh, God, I, I feel so ill-equipped to answer that question. Um, <laughs> Just for you personally. For me, I think the the level of um, stimulation. So, you know, one of the things I've always enjoyed, and I got this question a lot actually when I moved from Radio National to the project because people looked at that as an odd move, like Radio National to commercial television, like I was sort of dumbing down everything, whatever. And I said, well, the thing to understand is all broadcast is dumbing down actually. Mm. Talk to anyone who's an expert in their area about what they think about media treatment of that area yeah. and they will not have a nice word to say usually. Yeah. So it's all dumbing down. But the thing as a broadcaster that's always interested me is variety, mm. which is why I've liked doing shows like the radio stuff, the stuff I did on Radio National and Drive, the stuff I did when I filled in for Fane or whatever. It was all... One minute it's this, the next minute it's that, and it's fun, then it's heavy, then it's and I've just always liked that. And the project is about the most extreme distillation of that <laughs> that you could yeah. possibly imagine. So um, I think that sort of stimulation I've always enjoyed, and, and the ability to contribute. There, there is something really lovely about when you're interviewing a politician and they say that thing that is begging to be picked up and taken to task. And you're actually in the chair and you can do that. Yeah, that's There true. is a lovely moment. Oh, lovely is not the right word, but there is something about that that's satisfying. Far more so than sitting at home screaming at the television <laughs> when, yeah. you know, when it doesn't get picked up or yeah. whatever. So 
those things I love. I mean, they're the worst. Um, I don't know. I, I, I feel at the moment I'm just not optimistic about the way that media works. And I think it probably comes back to some of the stuff we were talking about uh, previously about the subordination of issues to personality. I think you you, met, you referenced how, what did you say? I sneeze and... Yeah, there's a story just, about it. Can I just be clear? I don't ask for that. Like, mm, of course. Because people seem to think that it, this is some kind of self-promotion, like you're mm. out there trying to, you know, weighing in on things so that, you know, go, I'm, I, it's like you rang the website to say, could you please, <laughs> by the way, I've got an opinion on something, could you just run a, you know... Uh, it's not like that at all. Um, I actually find it I find it a waste of everyone's time, really, mm. and a bit disorientating because I'm just trying to do my job and I'm just trying to deal with whatever stories are in front of me. So I find that sort of stuff difficult, I think. Um, there's a quote that I think is misattributed to Eleanor Roosevelt, and I, I gotta get, I'll, I'll get this slightly wrong, <laughs> but it's something like, Great minds discuss ideas, good minds discuss events, and average minds discuss people. And I can just feel the pressure that is being brought to bear on media at the moment is pushing it further and further down that scale, and, I, and that worries me. I should really have looked up that quote. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be able to find it. I'm sure, I'm sure you will have gotten it semi-right. Yeah. Um, right, final five questions. Uh, oh, God. Yeah, right. we've, got, we've gotten to like the end. This like the fast money. Yeah, <laughs> this is the fast money round. You win a prize, and that's me leaving your house so you can go to work. <laughs> uh, the biggest regret, your biggest regret? In life or? Just in media so far? Media. In your career? I don't have any really that That's an answer. To mind. I should, shouldn't I? No, you shouldn't. You don't need to. No, I should because... But I I think if you are in a job that you enjoy, every single decision, bad, good, ugly, has led you to this point. Yeah. So you go, well, what am I... What's the... There's not necessarily any regrets. If you're miserable and not working, you'd be probably easier to come up with a regret. I suspect it's truer that I couldn't be bothered remembering the things I should regret because it's probably just too painful. So it's probably easier just to, ah, it's all fine. <laughs> no regrets here. You know what? If I actually went away and thought about it, I would probably have quite a list. Mm. But, uh, but they just don't spring to mind. It's not like they don't have that instant recall on it. Well, that's good. They're, yeah. they're, well, that means they're not weighing you down or you're just really well, good yet. at it. No, no, but you know what? The next time something happens that I regret, it'll trigger all those other things. <laughs> yeah. You'll be in bed for a week. Yeah. Uh, your dream gig? I think probably... Being a sports caller. Caller? Yeah. You really love your sport. Is it all sport or is it just AFL that's no, like your sport. everything? I'm, I'm across. What, what do you want to talk? I don't can't talk about anything because no. I have no knowledge about any sport there is, whatsoever. There is something about having the opportunity to call the 100 metres at the Olympics or something. That would be pretty amazing. Do you have – because calling is a specific skill. Yeah, 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 and I haven't acquired it. You haven't practiced or anything? Ray no. Warren style, he used to race marbles down a hill and no, practice no. his race call. No, that's, no. See, that's amazing. <laughs> what a, that's why I'm not in that job. I, I think I could uh, pretty easily call cricket because mm-hmm. I know cricket really well and the rhythm of it is – I love the contemplative nature of it. Yeah, you've also so, got a bit of space in between yeah. to have it. Yeah, it's not like things are happening. I always look at footy callers or no, stuff where things are happening fast. I'm like, how do you? How can you even I see who that is? I don't is? know how people do that. <laughs> yeah, um, I'd love to be able to do that, but no. Uh, but cricket, I reckon I could radio cricket on the radio. 
That's the dream. I because, love it. Because the great thing about cricket on the radio is you get the chance to luxuriate in the language. Yes. To descri- How am I going to describe that shot? Yeah. And you you've know, got you the time to do you it. You do. Mm. So you don't. You don't. You don't just have to say. Uh, Anderson's in and bowls to Warner who lets this go through to the keeper. Mm. You could say Anderson approaches and Warner just inspects this as he <laughs> <laughs> lets it go on its way into the gloves of whatever. You know what I mean? You can just, you can have... Your smile's so wide. You yeah. must do this at some point. This I've got to know. This is the thing. I don't, I don't have time. But I would, I'd love to do Maybe one day. Maybe yeah. one day. I'll call the Boxing Day test one day. Okay. All, all right. right. That's on the list. We'll put it down there. Uh, a big idea that you have yet to get up. Is there Oh, any? as in like a media idea? Yeah. Um, I don't actually come up with a lot of media ideas because I'm too busy hacking away at my t- job, which is always daily. Any other book ideas? I do have uh, a few book ideas. They're not very well formed. One idea that I have uh, is... Oh, I've got a few. One, I want to write a book about this thing that I'm calling the Performance Society. So it's kind of related to what we were talking about before, about how everything becomes a performance and then what the consequences are of that for everything, for our own psychological well-being for politics for public debate for all sorts of things it's an interesting um, book yeah and the fact that everything's become so this is now pervading all aspects of our lives um with i think really serious deleterious consequences well so, there's a you can drill down and say that trump's a trump's a response oh, to that you know totally. and I, all of a sudden when somebody's in the white house and making decisions over the leader of the free world like that's that's a well, huge one of the, one of the, i think result. the most serious things that the media has overlooked about the Trump phenomenon is that Trump is the natural expression of the media. Yeah. And so as much as media wants to stand back and tut-tut or whatever, it's like, no, no, this is your guy. This is your creature. And a classic case of that sort of uh, thing we were talking about earlier about the idea that you've got more weight because you're on TV. Yeah. That that somebody can come out and say stuff that is that if they were sitting in a room as a nobody, you would say we're never inviting the crazy yeah. guy to the party again. Yeah. But because he is a TV star, there's this weight that people say, you know, they look to him and say, oh no no no, he's just telling it like it like it is. Yeah yeah. And you think no. So no. <laughs> I, I, well, there there've been all these analyses on how much free advertising effectively Trump got by being so over the top and so entertaining and they did the tally and it was so far ahead of anybody else. Mm. Billions of dollars worth of free exposure. Um, even if a lot of it was treated critically, but a lot of it wasn't. So, for example, in the primaries, he was the candidate. Whenever he held a rally, it was pretty much run live. Yeah. Un- uninterrupted. No one else got that treatment. All that sort of stuff. And there's a lot of focus on that as well. Did the media help Trump in that way? I think that's the lesser of the issues. That's, that's an issue, but it's the lesser of it. I think if you distilled the media down right now into the values that drive it, the values that allow us to discern between what is a story and how to treat a story versus what is not, Trump matches those values. Mm. And I think that's very serious. Absolutely. Oh, I'm going to read that book. Hurry up and write it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll do it in the meeting. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Uh, what would I actually be doing or what would I want to be doing? Uh, what would you want to be doing? Um, Outside of media. Probably if you music. Are you good? 
Well, I don't know. How do you want me to answer that question? Oh, yeah, it's a hard question to answer because you can without sounding like an a-hole. How yeah. to... You've been playing since you were a kid? Yeah. Uh, and lots of different instruments? Uh, well, guitar and saxophone are my instruments. Right. Uh, and I can play piano, but I, I, I only do that for writing purposes. Right. And you perform. write music and... Yeah. Uh, so you'd like to do that professionally? If yeah, in a dream world? that'd be great. I mean, I'm in a band and we do write stuff and we're mm. working on an album and all that sort of stuff. It'd be great to have full time just to dedicate to it. That's cool. But I don't know how you want me to answer that question. No, are I know. Good? It was a stupid question. Are you good? It, it was a really stupid question. It was one of those questions that immediately <laughs> comes out of your mouth and you're like, how is an individual supposed to answer that without sounding like a dickhead? Like you yeah. can't assess your own ability. Show you my marks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was a bad interviewing there. <laughs> um, and finally, your advice to people wanting to get into the business. Uh, good luck <laughs> um, because I don't know what the business is and by the time it becomes a real thing for you, depending on what age you are, who knows what it will be if it even exists. But uh, I think it's generally true that action brings reaction. So just be active, I think. Um, if you're producing things, then things come from that. Mm. Work begets work. Activity begets activity. And the other thing, which is something I always say in conversations when people talk about career, but I, for some reason have managed to avoid until now in this conversation, is uh, really my whole career is an accident. But it's an accident that's been born of just taking, like someone opens a door, just walking through it, even though I'm not really prepared, not really having any idea where it's going, uh, even though it's probably potentially extremely embarrassing. Mm. So the Fane thing is a good example. I just walked through that door. I didn't think I could do it really. And my attitude was if I get thoroughly embarrassed, it'll be over very, very quickly. Mm. No one will remember it. Someone else will be embarrassed next. And I get to have that experience. Saying yes is a big thing. Yeah. I think it's a mistake to say no to anything. Yeah, well, it depends what it is. Yeah, unless it's going to be career suicide. But if there's an opportunity, if the only reason you're thinking about saying no is that you're scared or you're nervous about whether you're ready, you just got to go and do it. I think that's true. Yeah. I I was reading a quote that your wife, Susan, said about if you got offered two free tickets to the – the nuclear power plant in Japan or the Fukushima plant or something, you'd go. Like you're just somebody that'll go say yes to whatever. doesn't yeah. matter how dangerous or there silly is a, it is. There is a bit of that. I don't think she needed to put free tickets. I don't think you <laughs> needed to make it sound like it was – I was after comps for everything. But the basic idea – you just want to get into whatever party it is, yeah. even if it's a nuclear <laughs> yeah. meltdown. Yeah. I'll be there. That's Two right. tickets. Thank you. Someone cutting a ribbon? <laughs> yeah. He goes to the opening of an envelope. Yeah. Uh, now, I've run out of questions. Have you? That's me done, which Good. means that you can actually go and do the work that you paid for. <laughs> um, thank you for letting me sink into your couch for such a large amount of time. No worries. I hope the audio hasn't been too echoey. No, well, <laughs> you're about to find out. You can EQ that out. Oh, can I? I don't know how to do that. I'm well, not. I'll I'll learn. <laughs> If you want to go anywhere in this industry, you're going to have to get across that. Exactly. Um, thank you so much for talking to me, Walid. I no really worries. appreciate it. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Thanks so much for listening to my chat with Walid Ali and a big audio kiss. Mwah! 
for you if you are one of the delightful humans that has left a review in iTunes. Shout out to Daisy80 and Lissy Lips. I really appreciate you taking the time to do a little blurb in the back end of iTunes so that other people can find the show. Coming up next week, I'm going to be chatting to the very well-known co-founder of the Mamma Mia Women's Network, Mia Friedman. She's recently released a book called Work Strife Balance that's all about work and life and how it is impossible to balance the two, no matter how many hot photos of yourself you post on Instagram with the hashtag blessed. We chat a lot about how she got into the business and her movement from magazines into the online world. And she talks about seeing the writing on the wall for the magazine industry early and how that put her in the perfect position to create Mamma Mia. I have a a weird ability to be just just at the front of the ma- – like I've got very mainstream mass tastes, but I'm just – I'm one of the early sheep. Mm. I'm not one of those people who are right down the road going, here's where we should go. I'm not that person. Uh, um, but I am just – where whatever I'm interested in, I know that there are a lot of people are going to be interested in it really, really soon. And for me in the early 2000s, it became, it became digital. And I tried hard to get my uh, print publishers um, – to understand that there was a Armageddon coming and they just couldn't and that frustrated the hell out of me and I left and it's frustrated the hell out of me from the outside and, and saddened me that some of the iconic brands that I loved as a reader and then worked on um, when I was in mags like Dolly and Cleo have not made that transition mm. and, and have fallen away. I mean, they were iconic brands. Yeah, Cleo, huge, man, Dolly. Huge. How can they have been left to collapse? Like why... Had they made a better transition to digital, there might not have been room for us to launch Mamma Mia. It is a great chat with a very smart lady. I hope you'll join me for that. I'll see you then. 